This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Nadia Boltz-Weber. She is pastor and founder of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. I spoke with her on August 9, 2013, at the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina. Download the MP3 of the produced show with Nadia Boltz-Weber at onbeing.org. Well, I hope... Looks like we're starting. <laughs> okay, so this is the only uh, live event I've ever done where I think I might have mud on my toes. If I do, <laughs> to forgive me. Um, again, it's great to be here, and it's great to be here when it's cooled down just a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with um, Nadia Boltzweber, who I've, is, you know, uh, people ask how we find the voices for the show. And a lot of what happens is I start, I become aware of someone and just, you know, they get on the list and then I start following them. So I've been following you for a long time. Oh, and that's then I creepy. say, you know, I know that I'm going to get. <laughs> <laughs> I peek in your window. <laughs> Oh, so then when we got invited here and I saw that you were on this schedule, I said, well, this is it. This is the time. Um, Nadia Boltzweber is the founder and pastor of the downtown, downtown Denver House for All Sinners and Saints. Is it House for All Sinners and Saints? House for House? All Sinners and Saints, yeah. or the, you know, we, we call it half-ass. She tweets as sarcastic Luther, and she's just written a spiritual memoir which is outstanding, called Pastrix. Nadia, Nadia Boltzweber is an important and completely original character in the emerging church universe. One blogger wrote, her sleeve tattoos and sailor's mouth are an immediate tip-off that, th- that this woman ain't your mama's minister. <laughs> <laughs> so you were raised Church of Christ, mm-hmm. and that's not the United Church of Christ. Correct. It would be its ideological opposite. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> What I really recognized in how you described it is that it mostly meant being good at not doing certain things. Yeah, right. Like not smoking, not uh, drinking, not dancing, not mixed bathing, which sadly is not as kinky as it sounds. It just means boys and girls in the same swimming pool. That was not allowed. Uh, no musical instruments in church. Yeah, yeah. that's a yeah, the Church of Christ has that. No musical instruments in church. Which is actually, that. to tell you the truth, one of the really beautiful things about the tradition. I, I serve what might be the only a cappella Lutheran church in the country. So even though I have a Lutheran congregation, that's the piece of my heritage that I imported into my church plant. That is really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's like sitting in the middle of a 140-person choir. They all sing mm-hmm. an a cappella four-part harmony. Mm. It's beautiful. Oh. Um, so, you know... I could not say the first, the very first word of your book on public radio. <laughs> I'm not going to say it here either. Here's a sentence I can just get away with. Um, the mystery of the universe, parentheses, the same universe that sometimes still makes me wonder what the hell I'm doing and that maybe this really is a fairy tale, <laughs> close, was created by God. Um, 
I wonder with all the distance you've traveled in your life, also away from that origin, that place yeah. you started, is that a sense that this was created by God, this, this, this sense of the mystery? Was that, is that something that was with you early on? Yeah, it's funny. I never, with everything that happened and all of the stops along the way, I never really managed to be an atheist. I couldn't pull it off. I think that the fact that there is a God um, is something that never left me, no matter where I sojourned to. And so that particular piece I've never struggled with, I think. But I, but I have struggled with what that God looks like. You know, I was told that God was a man, for instance. And it's weird to say that, like, it feels like by saying God, like Mary Daly said, if, if, if God is male, then male is God. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's this really insipid message to girls when, when, when you use the exclusive male pronoun for God, which is that God is male, but you're not. But you know what? Jimmy is. <laughs> so whenever you sort of attribute... A, a human characteristic to God that some people have and some people don't, it becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. And so you hear it, you know, a lot of people will say, Father God, oh, Father God, we just praise you for being such a good... And it's like just male pronouns, male pronouns. And I'm not opposed to them. I do use male pronouns for God. I'm not mm-hmm. opposed to that. But it's like saying, dear redheaded God, we just... <laughs> We just praise you for being a redheaded god. You know, it's like that's great for the redheads. You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> I, <laughs> All right, I'm not. I'm just gonna leave that one. That was, that was for you. Um. So you know, when I was when I was getting ready, preparing to interview you. There are a lot of interviews out there where people ask you... I mean, I, I believe you have the entire liturgical year tattooed on one of your arms. Correct. Yeah. And there are a lot of interviews where people ask you about those tattoos. Yes. And, and that as a, store, as a way into your theology. Sure. No. Um, I wonder if... <laughs> how the other tattoos oh tell the story... <laughs> I never hear people asking you about those. And you know, I go to yoga, which is where I'm exposed to a lot of great oh. tattoos that I can never ask, but here I am. You're, You're exposed to a lot of bad yeah. ones, too, I'm sure. Yeah, so, this you know. is why you are a professional interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to tell us about all of them. Okay. But, well, but a little bit of the story okay, of so, your life up to then through yeah, the tattoos. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, uh, when I was 17, I grew really fast. Like, I even have stretch marks on my back because I grew so fast. I'm mm-hmm. 6'1". And for a while, I would try and... Um, slouch. And if you know me, I'm not a sloucher, right? And that's because my family told me to be proud of my height. And so, but it was a struggle for me for a while. And I was at, my father was a military officer and I was at some kind of military banquet and slumping over and and the man next to him said, your daughter's really tall and beautiful. And my, fa- and my father said, thanks, she's a little self-conscious about it. And, and he goes, well, she's just a long-stemmed rose. And so... I know. When I was 17, I got my first tattoo, which is a long-stemmed rose. <laughs> However, um, note, note to the young women out there, I got so fat when I was pregnant that, um, okay, so the tattoo's on my hip, that it's like just a big stretch mark. It's like, it's like a Rorschach test. Like, I'm like, well, what do you think it is? <laughs> so... Um, but I, ha- 
had a but I had a boyfriend at the time um, who had tattoos, really beautiful tattoos. And so it was 1986 the first time I got tattooed. So to be a teenage girl getting tattooed in 1986 was not a common thing. No, I was like a little. I thought I was like a little outlaw. And then um, and I got my nose pierced okay. like 24 years ago, and people had never seen it. And I was waiting tables, and they'd be like, "God, does that go all the way through?" You know, and. Um, I had no idea at that point that if I hung out long enough, I would just be mainstream. <laughs> Because Which might have disappointed you. Yeah, I mean, it's like, <laughs> now the places I hang out in Denver, I just look like a soccer mom. Yeah, right. So, yeah. <laughs> and I have a cover-up on my back. I do have a tattoo that some junkie gave me when I was laying in his living room that's mm. just gross and it was basically st scar tissue that I carried around in many ways on my back and um, it's, uh, it's in the process of being covered up right now with mm -hmm. um, a huge image of the Annunciation of Mary finding out that she's pregnant with Jesus. So mm. it was time. So that was from those years where you did everything that the Church that like of Christ had ago. told you no. not to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so you are now demonstrating the fact that you spent time as a stand-up comic. Yeah. And you said in the book that you got less funny as you got more healthy, but yeah. you're still pretty funny. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have no idea how people manage to be preachers without being stand-up comics first. I mean, I don't... It's That's the path I took, and I just don't... It, it worked for me, because... Actually, comics see the reality from the underside, right? You, it's, like, it's like Dickinson, you know, tell the truth, but tell it slant. And so I think that comics do that. They, they come to the truth from a different angle than most people, but people can still recognize it as the truth. And I think a good preacher does the same thing. Mm. So. Here's something you wrote that I love about um, comedy, stand-up comics. You said, comics tell a truth... You can only see from the underside of the psyche at its best. Comedy is prophecy and societal dream interpretation. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, Bill Hicks is a great example of that. He was a, a genius comic. Um, and one of the great tragedies besides the fact that Bill Hicks died young was that the year that um, the greatest comic in America died, the worst comic in America was voted the best comic in America. Just carrot top. But um, it was, it's a tragedy that will ring through eternity, I think. But, yeah, I think that comedy is. It's about truth-telling. And, and, and then preaching is about truth-telling, too. So I think they're definitely related. The problem with being a comic who becomes a preacher is, like, if it's Saturday night and all I have are three pages of jokes about the text I'm trying to preach on, it's a bad week, you know? Yeah. So I, that's where I go first in my mind, and sometimes that's helpful, but sometimes it's a distraction, too. Mm -hmm. But those years that you were stand-up comic were also years of... I don't know if you felt despairing at the time, but, you, you, I mean, those were years of addiction, and yeah. um, I don't know, when you dated... <laughs> maybe you were... You were getting things um, etched on your back by junkies. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel a theme running through your story of... Um, you use the word the underside, right? Mm -hmm. That seeing the underside and, and seeing God at the same time. And that, right. that and is really important. It's not a but. Right. It's an and. Correct. No, I think that's right. And I think... Um, 
I think one of the reasons grace ends up being such an important concept to me is that I've experienced it on like such a visceral level and that I, um, it's something that has completely reoriented my life in a really disruptive way, not in a nice, fluffy, Bob Ross cloud kind of way, like in, a, in the way that, um, that kind of knocks you on your backside. Um, and so that ends up being sort of the story I want to tell over and over because it's just the most true thing I've ever experienced. So. You um, also really emphasize the the Christian themes of death and resurrection. And I'd, I'd like you to talk about really what those words mean for you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like the Christian life is a life of continual death and resurrection. Whereas I think some sectors of Christianity think, well, you're saved and then you're good, right? And then you just lead a really nice life and you're a good person and you're redeemed and you've sort of climbed this spiritual ladder so that you're close to God. And that's just not been my experience. My experience is of that disruption over and over again of going along and tripping upon something that I think I know or that I think I'm certain about and realizing I'm wrong or maybe fighting to think I'm right about something over and over and over again until I experience what I call... um, the sort of divine heart transplant. You know, it's like God <laughs> God reaches in and, you know, the prophets speak of this. And it's, a, it's not a polite experience. Well, you know? t- give me an example. Can you think of... Oh, gosh. Okay, so... Um, when my when my church was was mostly young adults and it was um, sort of you know hip urban young adults and then I preached at Red Rocks um, Easter sunrise services ten thousand people and the Denver Post ran a front page full page picture and story about me uh, on on um, preaching at, at Easter and about my church and whatnot and we only had about forty forty five people every week at this point and um, the next week um, we doubled in size like overnight and then we kind of tripled in size. And we were excited because we were really struggling to grow. But what happened was it was like the wrong kind of people. I mean, it was the wrong kind of different for (laughs) us, right? So, like, some churches might freak out if the drag queens show up, but these were like bankers wearing dockers, right? And we were like... (laughs) It was not... It wasn't like... I, fr- I freaked out. I'm not, this actually isn't a joke. I freaked out. And I kind of went on this little rampage about like, wait a minute, they could show up to any mainline Protestant church in the city and see a room full of people who look just like them, right? And like, why are they coming to, it was almost like, oh, well, this is just so neat. Like we just, oh, this church is neat. And like, we just, we couldn't like, they're so creative, you know? And, uh, and I just thought you're ruining our thing, man. You are like messing it up. And so... I, and at the same time, we had moved, we got evicted, it's a whole story, we moved, and we're in this like historic... Did they come with you stately, after the eviction? No, no, so we moved, and then that was the first service with all the new people, right? Oh. And it was like this stately, historic neighborhood instead of the like grungy, hipster neighborhood we came from. And I turned to this woman who's like my deacon, and I was like, we gotta get the hell out of this neighborhood because it's attracting the wrong <laughs> element. Like, this is... Yeah. And, and I would call my friends, and I'd rant about it, and what am I going to do? And I called one of my friends who has a similar type of church in St. Paul, Minnesota, called House of Mercy. And I called up Russell, and I was like, dude, have you ever had normal people take over your church? <laughs> and, uh, 
And so I go on this, I tell him the whole story, expecting him to be like, man, that sucks. And instead he goes, because our community holds this value of welcoming the stranger. And he goes, yeah, you guys are really good at welcoming the stranger when it's a young transgender kid, but sometimes the stranger looks like your mom and dad. I was, I was like, you're supposed to be my friend. Like, you know? um, and so I had scheduled this meeting to talk about the demographic change in our community. And in my heart, I thought, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll gather everyone around. And so the people who've been around since the beginning to tell the story about this church and who they are. And, and so that the people so, who so are new. Just, just to be clear, so this to you felt like a bit of a death. Of yes. No, the dream of I was, what you tur- your, the church had been about. Because I thought, well, then the people who showed up will find out what the church is about and leave. And then what happened, thank God, is I had that phone call with Russell and had this, like, God reaching in and pulling out my heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, like something that was actually warm and beating again. Mm -hmm. And we had the meeting, and I told that story, and the people who were new told us who they were and why they were there so that the people who have been there from the beginning could hear what the church is about. And then... Everyone said, you know, went around the circle, and then Asher said, look, as the young transgender kid who was welcomed into this community, I just want to go on record as saying, I'm glad there's people who look like my mom and dad here, because they love me in a way my mom and dad can't. And so... Yeah, you're clapping, but, like, that sucked for me. (laughs) Like, I was... Because... That was enough, like, I was sure I was right. I was going to fight the fight. I was going to do what needed to be done. And then, and then, like, my heart gets just cold and stony the, the longer I go on that path every time. And then you'd think I'd have, like, a Ziploc installed so that it wasn't such a messy, painful process when God had to reach out and rip it out and re- replace it with something beating, but it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, that's, that's the Christian life. It's always death and resurrection. If you, you use this term in your book that I really love, spiritual physics. It's spiritual physics. Something, something has, has to die. Go on. Yeah, something has to die in order for something new to, to live. It's spiritual physics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess, um, I guess I'd love for you to just kind of walk us in to the House for All Saints and Sinners. Um, I might start with this introduction from the Gay Denver blog. Uh, this may be white. From the gay Denver yeah. blog. <laughs> House for all sinners and saints. With a name like that, why wouldn't you try it? They rocked a chocolate fountain in the baptismal font for Easter. They do a blessing of bikes, and they have something called beer and hymns. Amazing. Yeah. That's, about, that's us, You like I guess. that? Yeah. yeah. It's this... Um, it's this quirky blend of tradition and innovation. I actually have this, I really feel strongly that you have to be deeply rooted in tradition in order to innovate with integrity. So I feel like the, that, that congregation is an example of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Easter, we have, for example, we celebrate the Easter Vigil. And, and this is an ancient liturgy in the church where you start with a new fire and you light it and you have this Paschal candle and you parade in chanting. And Do you go all night the night before? Well, no, but it's a good three, three and a half hour long liturgy and it's at night and so it is a class and then you you chant the exultant which is an ancient chant about the easter vigil and and we have baptisms and we do all these readings we do this litany of the saints where we go outside and read the names of the dead and invite the dead to witness the resurrection which is awesome because i'll chant like saint peter and saint paul and everyone says come celebrate with us we have this book of dead that people write names in and i always forget to read them in advance because inevitably they'll be like 
Michael Jackson and Farrah Fawcett. (laughs) (laughs) And and we come inside and like all of a sudden, we bang on the door, first of all, and and it opens up and then all the lilies are out and the lights are on and the candles and we sing hallelujah for the first time since Lent started. And then we have a Eucharist, we have these baptisms and we have a Eucharist and it's like amazing. And then we end it when it's done, we have a huge dance party. I mean, huge. And we feel like nothing says he is risen like a chocolate fountain in the baptismal font, right? right? So we are taking these traditions and we're living them out and then we're tweaking them in ways that are super meaningful or funny or mm-hmm. relevant for us so it's always both for us um, so did you know this, this sense you have about innovation and tradition going hand in hand um, I mean I believe that for you and this was true for me too I, I grew up Southern Baptist that liturgy when you discovered it later in life was a, was a discovery it was not sure. something that you had been exposed to sure. so um, I mean just tell me how this developed in you this love of tradition mm. how did that come to you? well I love that it has its own integrity and it doesn't demand mine in order to be meaningful mm. right and I, I love um, did you start to discover it in seminary? no uh, it's when I was dating my husband so I was not Christian when we met, and uh, even though you know I was raised Christian, but I left for ten years, and I was decidedly not Christian. And uh, we met playing volleyball, which is like the sacred breeding grounds of tall people. At, at, <laughs> but, and he was like this really cute Lutheran seminary student. He introduced me to a whole different form of Christianity I didn't know existed: liturgy, people who actually care about the poor, you know, all this stuff that I didn't experience at all in my in my background. And I just slowly fell in love with it, and. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I, I love the, I love the integrity of the liturgy. I think that's the thing I go back to. And I feel like me and my fellows are sort of more comforted by mystery than we are by certainty. Mm -hmm. And so there's this mystery you get to enter into in the liturgy and in the Eucharist that we find very comforting to go back to again and again. Hmm. Yeah. I have to say when I started hearing about you and when I saw your picture, I wasn't surprised that you were a Christian minister. I was surprised that you were Lutheran. Yeah. <laughs> and so I started digging around and said, I have to figure this out. And of course, it was a love story. Yeah. It was a love story. It is a love story. <laughs> I mean, the, becoming Lutheran for me, because being somebody who, who got clean and sober, it really felt like this rather rude interruption of my life by God. Like, I was really okay being dead by the time I was 30, and I had this tragic sense of who I was, and... Um, and God, it was like it was like God plucked me off that path, kicking and screaming, and went, "That's cute. I'm going to put you over here." <laughs> and so then I was all of a sudden on this completely other path that it didn't feel like I chose. And um, and when I when I discovered Lutheran theology, one of the things I loved was that it felt like this beautiful historical articulation of things I'd already experienced to be true in my life. Like, I, I already experienced the fact that I was simultaneously sinner and saint. That's like a doctrine in Lutheran uh, theology mm-hmm. because I have this enormous capacity for destruction of myself and other people, and I have an enormous capacity for kindness as well. And so I felt like somebody was finally able to say, yeah, you're simultaneously simultaneously both of these at all times. I loved the emphasis on grace, the fact that God always is coming to us. There's nothing we do to make our way to God. God's continually coming to us and interrupting our lives and um, wanting to be known. 
And um, I had experienced that to be true. And I was so grateful when I stumbled into a place where I didn't have to like remove half my brain in order to believe the things they were telling me to believe. And um, it just felt true to me already. So I wonder how many of your uh, parishioners, do you say parishioners? Do mm-hmm. Lutherans talk about mm-hmm. parishioners? Um, how many of your parishioners might, discri- might check that box on the pew poll that where they would be nuns, N-O-N-E-S, oh no gosh. religious identity, or, or might, have, mm. might have been nuns when they first walked through yeah. the door. We have more of those, I would uh-huh. say. There are, there, are, there are several people in our community that have my story in the sense of going, I was not looking for this mm-hmm. at all. And they were just like struck in the middle of the road by it. Now it's the central thing in their lives. So we definitely have that story. There are people who never had any religious background at all who are now just deeply a part of this. And then there are a lot of sort of walking wounded post-evangelical people there. Maybe 20% are Lutherans. We don't have a lot of Lutherans, Mm -hmm. actually. Um, Episcopalians. I mean, it just varies. A couple Jews. I don't know. I mean, really, there's everything from agnostics to evangelicals in this church. So I, I think mainly, like, I don't feel responsible for what they believe. I, I don't feel responsible for what the people in my church believe. I feel very responsible for what they hear in the liturgy and in the preaching. That's, my, that's where I have a role and a responsibility. And then what they believe, that's just, there's so many things that influence that that I have nothing to do with. So I don't feel responsible for mm-hmm. it. But do you, because there's, there's something that maybe seems counterintuitive about a church like this, I mean, I think modern would be too small a word to describe. Yeah. You know, um, I don't want postmodern as well, but uh, there's something a little bit counterintuitive about a place, a community like yours, um, so valuing liturgy and tradition. Mm-hmm. But I sense that, I mean, what you're saying is not only do they value liturgy and tradition, this kind of breadth of humanity gathering in one place, that, that, that liturgy and tradition becomes a bridge um, also where, as you say, you're not responsible for what they believe, and yet there's something that happens. And they all get to enter into it and be a part of it. A huge difference between this congregation and most is the way we do liturgy. We're in the round, which is really important because it democratizes the space. So the altar is quite literally and metaphorically at the center of our lives together as a community. Mm -hmm. And so being in the round... There's an accountability of presence. Um, You can see each other. Uh, It facilitates the singing more. And it democratizes the space. If you go into most churches, really, a third of the space is for the two special people who get to stand up front. So, like, if you walk in the door suspicious of institutions, suspicious of presumed authority, you already are turned off. You walk into the space, and one-third of the space is for the two special people. You're like, why are you special, right? So I wear clerics, I wear a clergy collar, but I sit among the community with everyone else. Mm. And then liturgy means the work of the people. And yet we've, we've relegated almost every part of the liturgy to the priest. Makes no sense. So people walk in and they get to decide when they walk in if they want to do one of the jobs in the liturgy and they just grab that booklet. And so they can go, oh, I'm going to do the uh, greeting or I'm going to do the prayer of the day or I'm going to say the benediction or the post-communion prayer or serve communion. Nobody has to deem them worthy of it or good at it. And so the whole liturgy is led by within the community from the people who are there. I say the absolution, 
two out of three Sundays I preach, and I say most of the Eucharistic prayer. And other than that, nobody hears from me. Oh. It's very we're we're anti excellence pro participation is how we put it. <laughs> we don't do anything really well. We, but we do. Right, there's another way you said is. <laughs> You said that you're super participatory, but high church. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I call it informal high church slash tent revival. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you talked about how when you were first getting piercings and tattoos, it wasn't the, all the rage. Um, soccer moms didn't have them. <laughs> we didn't have soccer moms then either. I have a, da- a daughter, a teenage daughter, who has some piercings. And um, when I've gone with her to do that, to me, the, the piercing parlors, they, they have this real sacramental feel to them. Yes. Uh, absolutely. I just wanted to ask you yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, I think that um, to sort of willingly go and modify your body is almost always attached to a deeply meaningful story for people. Mm-hmm. Not always, but quite often. Um, And so I think it's a place where you're saying, I'm going to submit to another human being who's going to do something that's going to modify my actual body. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's an element of trust to it that can feel sacred in a sense, sometimes scary. And I think that there's, uh, I mean, if we believe that that Christianity is incarnational, it's important to pay attention to human bodies. Mm -hmm. And human bodies carry stories. And some of us choose to carry those on the outside and not just on the inside and I think that's what you see in a lot of tattooing and piercing yeah and, and, and the, the people who are doing the tattooing and piercing I've, I've experienced them it feels like they carry this as a sacred trust absolutely um, so do you think about what this rise in tattooing and piercing and body work says about this age we're in um, is, it, is there anything bigger going on Well, I think we're used to personalizing everything. This is a generation that grew up with choose-your-own-adventure stories. They they got to choose how a book ended. They got to choose. They got to personalize their their homepage. They personalize their Facebook. They personalize everything. And so I think it's the personalization of the body, in a sense, as well. Mm -hmm. It's like you used to just doodle on the outside of your trapper keeper, (laughs) and now, oh, bless you for knowing what a trapper keeper is. showing my age <laughs> no they still have them they yeah. do. oh they do yeah oh, they God. do <laughs> um, so and then I think we doodle on the outside I mean I, yeah. so I think it's the there's a personalization of the body as well because mm. we're just used to that you mm-hmm. know I do my radio thing I'm Krista Tippett I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being I'm outdoors at the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs North Carolina today with Nadia Boltz Weber of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver Wild goose is a Celtic Christian metaphor for the unpredictable spirit of God. And this is a multi-generational gathering around music, justice, spirit, and art. So one thing I really like that you name and elaborate on in your book is, is a real reality check about churches, even your church, as a place that is going to disappoint people, where people will get hurt, because it's full of human beings. Yeah. Um, and we all, you know, we know that these things happen and they take us by surprise and they're so devastating because it's church. Uh, you know, you've said, um, 
you, you, you're very clear that this community will disappoint people. It's a matter of when, not if. We will let them down, and I'll say something stupid and hurt their feelings. And experience has proved that this is true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm not, I'm not idealistic about any kind of human project. I try and always keep that in check. Um, I'm completely idealistic about God's ability to redeem our stuff and our mistakes. But, um, but I think if we aren't open about the fact that we've made them, that can be a barrier to experiencing that forgiveness and that redemption and that grace. So I think in a way, what might sound sort of cynical about, you know, don't trust us, don't be too, uh, you know, don't, don't be idealistic about this community or about me. To me, that just opens a door for grace in a sense. Because what I say to people, I mean, I literally say that at our welcome to house brunches. Like, I'm glad you love it here, but like, at some point I will disappoint you or the church will let you down. Please decide on this side of that happening. If after it happens, you will still stick around. Because if you leave, you will miss the way that God's grace comes in and fills in the cracks of our brokenness. And it's too beautiful to miss. Don't miss it. Have you had have you had experiences? Um, I mean, how, what that looks like three dimensionally, oh, yes. how that plays out that you could yeah, talk about. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to talk about specifics because I don't have permission from right, the people in right. my parish. But I can say that they are not unfamiliar with me apologizing for being wrong. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, and they have forgiven me many times for mistakes that I've made. Mm-hmm. And I'm exceedingly grateful for that. Also, I will say that I think that the fact that I don't find it a threat to my authority to say that I made a bad call or that I've made a mistake, I think that actually allows this population to let me have authority for them if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like there's a lot of defending and protecting of authority that keeps us from apologizing when we're wrong or admitting that we made a mistake. And people see that. Like, here's the thing about admitting your mistakes. Other people see them, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like, we're... By, like, pretending we didn't, like, completely screw the pooch does not in any way keep (laughs) other people from knowing that we made a huge mistake. So... Um, if you're somebody who just has that transparency, people tend to just trust you more rather than resent you for making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Mm, and but on a little, a little bit of an angle at that, you you talked this morning. I know it was helpful for people about um, being humble, also not always being apologizing. So it's a different. I mean, this, you're talking about actually apologizing for actual concrete mistakes, Correct. not for your. Who but you then are. there's this line to walk, which yeah. can be especially tricky for women to walk. Correct. Yeah, I don't. I don't apologize for who I am. I. I, I am not self-apologetic. Um, I always try to apologize for mistakes I've made. Mm-hmm. And I try to not think of everything that happens in the world as a mistake I've made as well. Right, like that right. could, be a, that right. could be a trip up as well. Right? Yes. So I think there is that sweet spot um, because I think sometimes women, especially if they're in positions of power or authority, feel like they can't afford to apologize for their mistakes because it's too close to apologizing for who they are. And I think that, right, that is, right. I think that's a misstep. Or, or, as you say, they apologize for everything and or take everything on, and then you give your authority away. Yeah, which is just annoying. Don't yeah. do that. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I'd like to I'd like to come back to the the underside, um, the pain and suffering and despair that's out there, and um, you you talked about this sense of being picked up by the scruff of your neck, and um, but everybody doesn't get carried away yeah. from addiction, right. from being suicidal, from from mental illness, mm-hmm. and those were all things that you were really saw very cl- up close in people you loved for a yeah. number of years. Um, how do you how do you work with that theologically? Well, I think that we we've sort of glamorized certain types of brokenness. You know, there's like the big ones: mental illness, addiction. And in a way, it can be very tempting to allow those people who are so obviously broken to just carry all the brokenness for us. And I think that's not honest, because I just have never met a human being who has not experienced some kind of suffering, some kind of brokenness. Right. Maybe it's the fact, maybe it has to do with divorce, something that feels so common we're not allowed to like really consider it to be brokenness anymore. Or maybe it has to do with body image, or maybe everybody has something, and everybody has something that they, like it might not be a huge addiction, the really kind of big sexy ones, but it might be, there's something that we feel powerless over, that we feel like has a hold of us, that we don't feel like we have much choice in, like we've lost the ability to choose whether we're going to do this or think this or be in this relationship, and then our life has a, a certain element of unmanageability because of that. I think that is very, very, very common, even if you don't have one of the big sexy problems mm-hmm. um, that we sort of identify. So, so you're saying that's just the human condition and it's the human con- that you have those dark places. Absolutely. Whether I, you're... Yeah. I mean, maybe some people don't, but I don't find them very interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe some people are just perfectly fine, so, but I don't want to have coffee with them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so again, you know, the, the theology question, I mean, it... it, it how do you make sense of God in light of that? Mm. Here's the theodicy question, I guess. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, I, it, that really always comes down to my particular Christology, my idea of Jesus. Because I think a lot of people, when there's suffering, when there's tragedy, they say, well, where is God in the midst of this? And why did God allow this to happen? And I think that... Uh, the way I view it is not that God is allowing suffering in somehow in some way, but I think God is always bearing that suffering. So to me, the the most reliable way of knowing who God is is by seeing how God chose to reveal who God is in Jesus Christ, a human being. It's much easier for us to understand. Most of God is unknowable, and we should probably be grateful for that. I, I'm like, it's in that like I don't want to know, right? <laughs> but um, but I but. So if you look at Jesus, so to me, the, the greatest revelation of who God was was actually at the cross. Because to me, that's not God's little boy. Like God is some sort of divine child abuser sending his, you know, his son, and he only had one. You know, like, come on, give me a break, right? Like, God's little boy, and he only had one. And as this sort of divine child abuser, or as this cigar-chomping loan shark demanding his pound of flesh, you know, he's sending his little boy to the... What a hogwash, right? That actually is God on the cross. That's God saying, I would rather die than be in the sin accounting business that you've put me in. That from the cross... (laughs) 
that from the cross, you know, there's all this stuff about the final judgment. You know what the final judgment is to me? It's God dying on the cross and saying, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. That's an eternally valid statement to me. That is God's judgment upon us. And so um, to me, if God could bear that kind of suffering and only respond in forgiveness and love, that's the God who is present in a devastating hurricane, in, an, in, in that room with an abused child. So to me, God has come into the world and is bearing that, not causing it. Oh. Yeah. Um. Mary Magdalene, <laughs> who you've called the patron saint of showing up. Tell it, well, first of all, tell us about your Mary Magdalene tattoo, and yes. then tell us what Mary Magdalene means I to you. I do have a tattoo of Mary Magdalene. It's from a 12th century Psalter in the British Isles, the St. Alban Psalter. And this is only part of the depiction. The other part, so she's standing there with a finger up in the air, kind of going, shut the hell up and listen to me for a minute. And then over <laughs> here in the part that I didn't have room on my arm to she's show. She's not apologizing for herself. She's, not, yes. she's clearly not apologizing for herself, okay. A. <laughs> and then the, over on this part of the depiction, are all the apostles huddled with befuddled looks on their faces like pointing at scrolls, very confused. And so she's, <laughs> she is announcing the resurrection. So she was the one, this woman from whom, like, this woman who was delivered from so much, who was broken and could do nothing but follow Jesus and provide for Jesus and care for Jesus and show up. She didn't hightail it out when things got hot. She showed up. And she was the one who was chosen to be the first witness of the resurrection. She was the one who was told to go and tell. I don't know what other authority I need than that story to be a preacher. So... um, So I very much um, love Mary Magdalene, yes. <laughs> I'm going to do one other question, and then I'd like to open this up for about 15 minutes for just and it, um, open the conversation up mm-hmm. to the people in the room. Um, something else that I find you to be refreshingly honest about and self-critical or, or yeah, take, not afraid to cast a critical eye on yourself is uh, also how we sin when we start being convinced of how good we are being and how we're surfing. And you tell this story in your book about Howard and Amory. Is that how you say it? Amory. Amory. Um, After Hurricane Katrina. And I wonder if you would just tell that story. Yeah. So when when Hurricane Katrina happened, we were all just horrified at these images of people stranded on the roofs and stuck in the Superdome. And everyone was like, why isn't anyone helping? Yeah. And so um, I'm, I'm a sort of like take action kind of girl. And so the only thing you could do is like get on a wait list for the Red Cross saying we have things to offer. And so I went to my husband's congregation and I said, let's collect some money and see what we can do. And somebody said, hey, I have an apartment that's vacant. People, we could get one family or one couple and give them a new life here for as long as they wanted until they could maybe go back or stay or whatever. And so I just went into action and I went to this decommissioned Air Force Base where they were now bringing uh, Katrina evacuees. Is that, the, is that a word? 
Yeah, I think oh, so. Oh, good. Whew. And um, they were bringing them in, and I thought, okay, I don't want a single man, because that's, like, not, that's not, like, powerful enough. You're like, I want, you know, like, a young family or whatever. And I spotted this 16-year-old, this, this teenager who was, like, eight months pregnant, and I was like, money? That's who I want, right? And so... And so um, it was very, it was very heroic. And so I, as were you, I was very heroic. And so I said to her, you know, look, here's what we have to offer. We'll put you up in a, uh, in, in an apartment. We'll get you medical care. We have some money. We're going to help you get on your feet. Are you interested? She said, yeah, but I'm here with my father. And I said, that's great. You know, you can both come. So I went and I picked them up and I brought them back. We set them up in this whole life and, and I got her into like childbirth classes and I enrolled her in the high school and everywhere I went I was like, you know, she's a Katrina evacuee. As, as they're going like, you might have given $20 to Red Cross but I have an actual person like that I'm <laughs> saving, you know. And, um, and so... But these things kept not adding up in my mind. Like, she, her father was never around, and when he was, he was, like, kind of mean to her. And her, they said her mother was some addict, and they hadn't seen her. Anyway, there were all these pieces of the story that kind of didn't add up, but I kept not listening to them. And finally, Amory went into labor and had this beautiful baby girl. And there was this moment where this beautiful screaming child was pulled out of the body of another beautiful screaming child. She was, like, I think Amory was 16. And so, um, and I told her, we'll take care of you. And she, she brought, she, they came and stayed at my house right after the baby was born. I helped her with breastfeeding. And, but um, her, her dad ended up with this girlfriend who I, I just thought was very questionable. And um, she was way too old for a blonde ponytail. And there were just all these things that I didn't like about her. And, um, and she always smelled like menthol cigarettes. And she had this 10-year-old who was never in school. And so... Um, Anne-Marie really liked her, and after a few days, she wanted to go stay with her, and I thought that was a really bad choice, considering the fact that we were offering her this whole life here, but I said, okay. So we packed them up, and she went to uh, be with this other woman, her uh, dad's girlfriend. Then that night, it was about 11 o'clock at night, I was exhausted. She calls, and she, she's panicked. First time I'd ever heard her. She goes, you have to meet us. We're, we're in trouble. You have to help us. And I thought, oh my gosh, is the baby okay? And she said, it's fine. And I was so tired, and I thought, I've done nothing but help you for two months. Like, I need to sleep. But I went... We dropped our kids. No, we had a neighbor come and stay with our kids. We drove to the stop on the highway where they said they were going to be. It's pouring rain. She gets in the back seat with her dad's girlfriend. She, she's crying. She goes, um, my name's not Emery. It's, uh, what did I call her in the book? Ashley. It's not her name. Uh, she goes, my name's not Emery. It's Ashley. I'm not 16. I'm 15. This is not my, my dad's girlfriend. This is my mom. He's not, he's not my dad. He's her pimp. He raped me when I was 14. And we're not from New Orleans. We're from Aurora, which is a suburb of Denver. He had gone and dropped them off to have them uh, pose as evacuees so that he could get $4,000 from FEMA. And I was so ashamed that all of a sudden I didn't want to be as helpful to her. Like, I loved Anne-Marie, but do I love Ashley? Because I hate being lied to more than anything in the whole world. And uh, we got them into a safe house, and we made sure they were okay, and I never saw them again. And um, I was so ashamed to face my husband's congregation because now I wasn't heroic. Now I had been conned by um, a, a, a pimp and a prostitute from Aurora. That's not as cool. And um, 
And I, I went to church, and I just thought, I just can't even make eye contact with anyone. And this woman came up to me, and she, she grabbed my hand. I didn't even know this woman well. And she said, Nadia, God was glorified in what happened here. Because if they had not been loved in that way for that month, and for the couple months they were with us, they might not have ever realized that they could get help and that they could have a different life. And so this situation was sadder than a hurricane. And we still loved them, and that doesn't go away. And she made me cry, which I don't like to do in public. And um, it was definitely a humbling lesson. Mm-hmm. So. Mm. Okay, wait, I just have to say, here's the problem with my career is all my best stories make me look bad. <laughs> I just want to I just want to tell one story. No, but see, everybody wouldn't tell that story. <laughs> That's the point. Okay. Um, I think there are some microphones uh, somewhere. We have one right here. Okay. Let's do, uh, yeah, 15 minutes of conversation. Hi. I'm curious um, about your kids. Um, I'm the mom of double PKs, and um, I'm often asked, and they're now all out of the house, and people ask me questions about how did that all work. And I'm curious, so your children have parents who have dealt with con artists, let's say. And so can you just say something about how your ministry has enhanced your parenting well, if you read, you'll notice in the book, I almost never talk about my children, which is very intentional. My editor tried to get me to write about my kids, and yeah. I, I'm like, this is not the life they chose. They didn't choose for their mom to be a public figure. So I really try to uh, protect their privacy as much as I can. I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, Angelina Jolie, clearly, but, you know, <laughs> I... Um, but I do try and protect that. I can say that um, they've always been part of community, which I think is something that... I, I, which is something I hope has really formed who they are. Um, we, we are not the kind of family that does a lot of like family devotionals. We don't pray together as a family. We don't do this faith stuff in our home. You know why? My kids are around it all the time. And so I just feel like they need a break at home, you know? So like we, I know it's like a big deal to like build faith in the home and do all that stuff. We don't do that. <laughs> so... Do, do they do they go to both of your churches? Well, they always go to mine, and they um, and they occasionally go to Matthew's. They're mm-hmm. in comfort. They've been in confirmation at Matthew's church, mm-hmm. but they always they always come to House for All Sinners and Saints. And I'm in love with my kids. Like, it's, it's hard to not talk about them because they're amazing. <laughs> I'll just say this. I'll just tell you one thing. My daughter is in an all-girl rock band, and they um called Electric Music Box, and she's the oldest. And so it's all, like, 12- and 13-year-old girls. She's 14. And just, like, when you see these, like, 12- and 13-year-old girls playing um, Black Sabbath covers, <laughs> they just kind of tear up and go, oh, my gosh. <laughs> And my, and my son is like a real nerd. Like, well, first of all, he's 12 and he's five, nine and a half. And he's just like, he's the whole package. He's like this wonderful, geeky nerd, just obsessed with Doctor Who. And they're, ext- I, I um, really dig my kids. <laughs> oh, oh, 
train, trains don't make for good radio moments, so we're going to wait until it passes. You guys want to sing? Who's a good Who's a good song leader that can like um, like lead Amazing Grace or something? We all know the uh, words too. Yeah, good. Okay. Volunteers, come here. Come here. This is a very long train. It's a long train. Come on. <laughs> Let me know when the train is done. Yeah, don't mess with it. Yeah, there you go. All right, everybody. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was, was lost, but now I'm found. Thank you. 
So can I say this is exactly what they were worried about when they let me put the show on public radio? <laughs> That's why we can't be live. This kind of thing might happen. <laughs> um, there was a question. Um, you're in a liturgical church, very structural, a lot of sort of stuff, but you're a planter and you're doing your own thing. What was your experience being under authority? You have authority to speak, but what's your experience having, having to place yourself yeah. under authority? Yes, because I have a bishop. And so um, here's what I have to say about that. Somebody like me should have a bishop. <laughs> that is, I am why we have bishops. <laughs> Um, and I only say that half joking because, um, you know, I wrote a book. It was not an important piece of work. It was in uh, 2008 called Salvation on the Small Screen, where I watched 24 consecutive hours of Trinity Broadcasting Network. And uh, when the publisher asked me to do this, it was really, I mean, I was like, well, you pay me in advance. They paid me a little bit of money and I needed a, a new furnace. And so um, now I, like, needing a new furnace is not the best reason to write a book. It's just the one I had at the moment. Anyway, so I, my friends signed up for an hour each to watch with me. It's funny. It's not whatever. But what I realized was I was watching these TV preachers, people like Paula White and, um, and Jesse Duplantis, and I asked myself the question, like, did they, at the beginning of their ministry, love the gospel? Like, did they have this intention to really spread this beautiful good news? And if so, what were all the steps it took to become what they are now? And like, you know what they don't have? Bishops. They don't have people <laughs> looking over their shoulder to say, are you still on the yellow brick road? Do you know what I mean? And so like, I, you know what? I, I have been able to get other people to do things my entire life. And that can be a good thing and that can be a dangerous thing. And so I need somebody to be watching to make sure I'm still on the yellow brick road. So for that reason, I am grateful that there are bishops. Nadia, it's great to hear from you directly. Uh, my friend and I drove down from Indiana, drug my son along just for the, this occasion. Um, I am a Lutheran pastor, ordained 14 years. And I, I wanted to thank you because um, your boldness has inspired more boldness for me. Uh, they don't make Lutheran pastors who look like this either. Mm. And, and so um, I'm a bit unique in that way. But um, I so appreciated um, your recent uh, sermon slash blog post on um, why you named your depression. Um, I can't remember the name now. Francis. Yes, Francis. Yeah. Um, I, I, my husband was hospitalized at the time that that came out. And it's a real struggle in Lutheran circles, as I'm sure it is in other denominations, yeah. to be upfront right. about mental illness. Yeah. What has been your experience of that and any advice for those of us in the trenches? I mean, yeah, my I mean, husband's congregation, his reaction, 
their reaction was they just didn't pay him because he wasn't working. Yeah. <laughs> well, I... Um, what, why did you name your depression I Francis? named my depression Francis because it was like a really bad roommate who would never leave. And at the time when I really suffered from depression, it was when um, Kurt Cobain and, and Courtney Love had their child named Francis Bean. And so I named my... my dep- at the time they named their child, I named my depression Francis. But I always pictured her more like Courtney Love, kind of emaciated and a vintage nightgown with like smeared lipstick and a gin bottle and a cigarette like that was Courtney I mean that was Frances my depression and like at first she was kind of interesting to hang out with but then she just never moved out and so um I yes I mentioned this in a sermon and it's actually in the book I'm working on now that 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 piece about Frances and I have this thing about uh being a preacher who who reveals things about herself and it's that I always try to preach from my scars and not my wounds. So um, talking about depression is not in any way a wound for me. I don't suffer from it nearly as much, thank God, because I just take Welbutrin every day. But, um, yeah, big fan. So (laughs) I actually in that sermon said that um, Frances was a bit of a dope fiend, but it ends up there's one drug she doesn't like. It's called Welbutrin. And two weeks after I started taking it, the bitch was gone. So... um, But, but I think that as a preacher, it's good to, to tell the truth about yourself, but never in a way where if it's a wound, people can tell it's a wound and not a scar. And so if their reaction is to run for sutures or bandages for you, then you've, you're, you are off the road as a preacher. You have gone off the rails, right? So if the point is to invite them into, into a, a, a truth uh, space, for their own life, then you've done your job. So um, I do reveal these things about myself, but I, I try to be clear that it's not, you know, the pulpit is not a therapist's couch, and it's not a political, you know, posturing sort of soapbox, right? So I try to be clear, and it's a hard line to toe. I mean, it's it's difficult. It's hard to be to hold the office of word and sacrament if you're struggling too much with your own personal stuff. That's just hard. Um, and it's all about holding that office to me. And so I'm happy to talk about things that I struggle with, but never if it comes to the point where I can't hold that office for other people. So, But I think there's a, there's a hard, hard reality of church life and ministry that, and I think this is what your question was getting at, the minister can't be wounded and cared for in the way that the minister can care for others, right? In that moment, that community that is your community. And, and my community has been great. Uh-huh. My husband's community that he's served for several years right. has been horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I also, um, I, think, I think pastors should be people who have needs and, and who are wounded and have things but that I don't get my emotional needs met through my parish. Right. I get them met, but I have other venues for that. And so if something, God forbid, happened, if I was diagnosed with cancer, and that was a trauma for them, and they needed to take care of me Mm -hmm. for them, then I would allow that to happen. But I'm clear about getting my emotional needs met elsewhere and not in my parish. Mm -hmm. People have different philosophies about that, though. Mm -hmm. Let's do one more question, maybe two. There's one there and one here. 
Uh, as somebody who uh, is a big fan of stand-up comedy, I'd like to hear who do you currently think is doing the best work in terms of prophecy? Um, as somebody who's also tried stand-up comedy, I, as, a, as a Christian, I can often find it very difficult to bring any kind of like thoughts about you know the you know the gospel or anything anything like that into it, even when you know it's it's more ironic comedy into the context without like outing myself in the middle of the the, the rest of the crowd of the open mic guys. Um, who do you think is doing the best job, and what would you advise for a Christian who'd like to? Yeah, I think it's like being a prostitute. You don't want your prostitute to be a pastor. Like you don't want your comic to be a pastor, right? <laughs> I mean, it just it just makes it hard. Um, I think uh, I don't follow comedy anymore. I just, I'm not, I, I literally don't know who's out there. So I, I wish I could say, I mean, like I said, I think Bill Hicks was a genius. He was like Jesus in the temple overturning tables. But, um, but I don't really follow it anymore. I did, it's funny because I did a bunch of Bible content because it was, you know, I couldn't afford therapy at the time. So I just was cynical and caustic on stage instead and it was almost the same effect. And so um, I did a bunch of Bible stuff when I was a comic and I was not Christian. I talked about how we had a, we had a, um, some people have those illustrated Bibles, little pictures of Jesus. We had a scratch and sniff Bible. Like, have you ever smelled a leper? It's not good, right? So I did, you know, I did Bible stuff. And I'd say, my, my fundamentalist mom, she hates it when I say this because it's actually not true. It's just a joke. But I'd say, she'd be like, Nadia, the least you could do is come visit us more often since we won't be spending eternity together. <laughs> she hates that. My parents are actually so supportive and loving. I mean, they come to my church every couple months. They were at my ordination. Like, there's, they... My dad, I think every time I see him, hugs me for a long time and says, I'm so proud of you. And I think that really means, I'm so glad you're not dead or in prison. (laughs) It was pretty touch and go there for a while. (laughs) You also did joke, I think, that uh, you're not sure if your mom and her friends realize it, saying that... They would, you wouldn't spend eternity with them was not the best advertisement for right, right. coming over to yeah, their Spending side. eternity with my mom and her friends is not the best selling point for their religion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they should get smart to that at some point. <laughs> I think there was one more question down here. Let's do... Or, sorry. Okay, all right. Hi, Fran. Hi. Um, not to compare you to Jesus or anything, <laughs> but... I'm, um, I find myself thinking about the disciples um, and what it was like for the disciples um, to be you know, aware of these demanding crowds, the public of, mm. of Jesus. Mm. And that, for me, translates for you. I'm curious about how your congregation is uh, affected by or influenced by this call that you have to be at Wild Goose and yeah. adored by many. How, how, they're what's they're that very like? generous at sharing me uh, with, with others. Um, I think they see that, I think they understand that, that I am a, a resource for the broader church and they're happy to share. I do prioritize them. So literally for every, everything I agree to do, I say no to five or six things. So um, but I've actually considered, we are a bit overwhelmed with tourism at the church. And so um, we had over 100 visitors two weeks ago. And so I've considered putting something on my website that says, like, if you want to connect with me, check my speaking schedule. 
um, but that my congregation is not a meet and greet opportunity with me. And that feels like I'm being a diva or that I'm, it feels weird to me to say that, but I also am protective of them at the same time because I feel like there, there will be a tipping point at some, at, at some point. I mean, we, we love to have visitors. We always have visitors. It's part of our life of hospitality. But when people really are there just to meet me and connect with me because they read what I write, that doesn't feel like why the church is there. How many members of the church are there now? Well, we don't have membership. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in the Lutheran church, somebody's a member if they, if they uh, show up once and commune once and give money once. So we have thousands of members, if that's the case, right? <laughs> right. Because approximately all of the people visit the church, right? But um, I would say active people, there's probably 200 and 250, something mm-hmm. like that. And it started with eight people in my living room five years ago. So. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's such a freak show. I mean, not in the fact that, you know what that story about I was, we, I was worried because the normal people were coming to my church? Okay, the thing is, is literally you walk in now and you will see a convicted felon serving communion to a statewide elected official next to a a teenager with pink hair holding the baby of a soccer mom from the suburbs. And I thought the weirdness of my congregation was going to be diluted. Right? It is only weirder now. You walk in, you go, I am unclear what all these people have in common. (laughs) So a sermon of yours I wish I could have heard is... uh Loving our enemies, even if we don't mean it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think meaning it is overrated. I mean, I think... <laughs> because... I, think, I think this is profound. I really do. No, I'm yeah. serious. Like, oh my gosh, if God's going to wait till I mean it, that's going to be a while, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that the key is praying for them, not like feeling warm feelings towards people who've hurt you or towards your enemy. I don't think it's about feelings. I think it's about an action. And I think that action is commending them to the one who perfected the love of the enemy. That's prayer, right? So you commend them to the one who perfected enemy love. And that is what we, I think that's what the sort of love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you means. I don't think it's about feeling anything necessarily. Mm -hmm. Now, there are feelings involved with that. Usually it's me going, hell no. But, um, (laughs) but, and sometimes I actually will ask, because I think it, I will actually ask other people to do it for me sometimes. Like if I'm at the point where I cannot pray for someone, I will say, I cannot pray for this person. I really need you to do it for me. Mm -hmm. Because I think it needs to be done. It doesn't always have to be us and so it's like this thing like I don't think faith is given in sufficient quantity to individuals necessarily I think it's given in sufficient quantity to communities and the same with that whole thing like God will not give you more than you can bear I don't think God will give you more than a community can bear and we've individualized this thing of faith so much In a way that makes it inaccessible to people because they're like, well, I don't know if I believe this. I don't, like the Apostles' Creed, I, don't, I can't say the Creed because I don't know if I believe every line in the Creed. I'm like, oh my God, nobody believes every line in the Creed. Right, right. But in a room of people, in a room of people, for each line of the Creed, somebody believes it, so we're covered, right? So it's not... 
this is Western individualism run amok in religion. It's not your creed. It's the church's creed. And I think we've really lost track of that in this, like, personal me and Jesus, how I feel, what my piety is, my personal prayer life, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And we've lost the beauty of this thing is really about community. It always has been the body of Christ. Um. You, you mentioned your parents, and to me, to me there's an image in the relationship you have with your parents, and, and by extension with that tradition that you grew up in, which you left um, yeah. and turned your, you know, rejected in some senses, yeah. um, that they embrace you at, at a certain angle to their beliefs, right? Yeah. Um, and that you learn about God... You know, not necessarily through what people believe about God, mm-hmm. um, but no, or not what they say about God, but how they are to you. And right. it seems to me that your parents' love for you yeah. and how they've reacted to you all along the way yeah. is, is such a picture of that. Yeah, my, my parents are really extraordinary people, and um, they love me fiercely. And I haven't always been the easiest person to love. And... Um, I was terrified when I felt this call to ministry, and I felt like, because I didn't go to seminary to be a pastor. I was just going to stay in the, in the academy. And anyway, I, I felt really called to start, to be a pastor to my people, like to start a church for my people, in a sense. And that began to fell, feel less and less ambiguous. Like I knew, oh my gosh, this is what I'm supposed to do in life. And then it started to feel precious. But at the same time, I panicked because, you know, after being in recovery for a certain amount of time, and when you still have character defects left, you're fine with them. I don't want to look at other defects of my character. You know, I'd been in recovery for so long that I didn't I would have to do a lot of personal work to become the kind of pastor I'd want to be, and I didn't want to do it, and I was scared. And I had to tell my parents that I was going to be a pastor, and I was scared because I thought I didn't want them to beat me with the scripture stick. I didn't want them to shame me. And then I felt horrible that my parents still could shame me, and I was in my late 30s. (laughs) And so um, I just, with great trepidation, I told them that I felt called to be a pastor, and I told them the whole story. And my dad gets up, and he grabs his Bible, and I thought, oh, no. But he turned to the book of Esther, and all he read, it was this point where she knew that she was supposed to do this thing, and she was scared and didn't want to do it, and she was talking to her uncle. And my father read this, but you were born for such a day as this. And then he closed the Bible, and I, I still tear up thinking about this. And my, my parents embraced me, and they gave me a blessing, and they, they prayed over me. And, like, it's very scriptural to, 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 that you need a blessing to go and do what you're going to do and to be who God's called you to be. And the fact that my blessing got to come from my Church of Christ parents is one of the most profound gifts in my lifetime. And, um, and so if, like, if people feel like that God has called them to something and, the, and you have trepidation, you need to get a blessing from someone. And if it can't be your parents, find somebody else. You need to go with a blessing because I cannot tell you how that released me and freed me to go and do the work I did. And I feel like it's this thing in the Bible that we've forgotten about. And for me, it ended up being really critical and profound to go with a blessing. Thank you, Nadia Boltz-Weber. 
Thank you all for coming. Thank you.